My life did not change because of that TV show. I mean, my life changed because I worked my ass off and wrote some best-selling novels. Right. And, you know, that was really what changed my life and allowed me to feel like I'm successful. I mean, to me, the part that's great about it is how much more independent women are Mm -hmm. and how much more self-actualized women are and are allowed to be. So that, to me, is really the important part of Sex in the City. That's the voice of Carrie Bradshaw. Not Sarah Jessica Parker, but the real Carrie Bradshaw, Candace Bushnell. It was her life that became the column, that became the book, that became the hit series, Sex and the City, and inspired all the spinoffs that followed, including And Just Like That, which is now in its second season. Bushnell's voice made Sex and the City a cultural phenomenon and shaped how generations of women think about friendship, fashion, and yeah, sex. But, as Candace Bushnell is quick to remind us, her career didn't start with Sex and the City, and it certainly didn't end there. She's written 10 books, executive produced two TV shows, and has recently written her own one-woman show called True Tales of Sex, Success, and Sex in the City. By exploring the complex dynamics of sex and power for the better part of 40 years, Candace Bushnell has shifted cultural attitudes about what it means to be a modern woman. Her work fundamentally changed how women see themselves and, as one of our producers observed, gave us all a new vision of feminism. For me, when I was growing up in the early 2000s, Charlotte, Miranda, Samantha, and Carrie seemed like the four avatars of adult womanhood. And thanks to Candace Bushnell, everyone wanted to be a Carrie. I'm Charlotte Alter, senior correspondent for Time, and this is Person of the Week. Candace, I can't thank you enough for coming on this show. I'm such a huge fan of your work and your writing, and I'm so excited to talk to you. I'm thrilled to be here. I want to start by asking you about your childhood in Connecticut. So when you were growing up in Connecticut, what was your image of New York City? You know, my image of New York City was that it was a really glamorous, interesting place, and I felt like it was a place that I had to go because that was where the writers went. And I always felt like that was where I would go and make my career. I mean, even before I'd been to New York City, you know, I probably read Eloise at the Plaza. I had read Harriet the Spy. I had all kinds of ideas about New York and how glamorous it was and how interesting it was. So I always knew that I would go to New York and write about it. In the town that I grew up in, which was a very nice town, it was a suburb of Hartford. It was also a farm town. Mm -hmm. And, you know, everybody rode horses. It was almost like in some ways out of the 1700s. And I always knew that my childhood was really a treat and that my adult life probably wouldn't be anything like my childhood. Hmm. So these horses, was it like people owned horses? Yes. Everybody owned horses, but it wasn't, 
You know, it's not like the horse world of today. We were in pony club. People had backyard horses. So that was really how we got around. We got around on our horses. And it was great to have a horse at a young age because it was like having a car. Like if you wanted to go to your friend's house, you'd ride a horse? Yes, I would. Wow. Everybody would just get on their horses and ride. And we would ride probably 10 miles. Wow. You know, on our horses, on all the trails that had been there. You know, these are the same trails along the Connecticut River that people had been riding on probably for hundreds of years. Wow. So it was very, very bucolic. Mm Mm-hmm. And so did you have a lot of strong female friendships when you were growing up? Yes. Yeah. I, I so who did. were your girlfriends? I had two younger sisters. We had no boys. I was a feminist. I was like a mini Gloria Steinem. <laughs> and my sisters and I were all really small. And we had to defend ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, even back then, I think I had a group of probably like 10 little girlfriends. So I was very, very woman-oriented. So you were this sort of very feminist little girl. What did that mean to you back then? What was feminism in that context? That's a good question. I think it really meant being equal to boys. Mm -hmm. There was a huge amount of sexism back then. People didn't even cover it up. There was, you know, this constant, endless sexism of what little girls could do and what little boys could do. People would just tell you all the time, boys can do this and girls can't do that. Mm -hmm. Women are supposed to think a certain way. It's changed a huge amount. But in the 60s, It was in your face. I mean, you could not get away from the sexism. So for me, feminism was really railing against the thought police. I mean, I can only imagine how overwhelming it must have been. Were there ways in your own life that you felt like this sexism really presented itself that then in your later life you kind of broke free of? No, because I broke free of it from the beginning. I mean, just even the whole idea of dating and, you know, women owing men sexual favors and attention and, you know, all of that was just rampant. And, you know, nobody talks about it that blatantly. But when you're young, you see things as pretty black and white. You know, it's like women... You're not really supposed to have any sexuality or feelings of your own. It's really about they're all in service to using your sexuality to have access to the income stream. That very complicated mix of like sex and money and power. Yes. That frankly, I think your work really helped to upend. Well, I feel like that's really what I write about is sex, money, power, who has it, how it affects us as women in terms of what we can do, who we think that we are, Mm -hmm. all of it. 
So can you tell us how you got to New York? I was in college and I visited New York a few times and then I decided I was going to move there. And that was it. I pretty much ran away from college and just went to New York and I stayed in a hotel and I immediately met some people. Right. You know, I had roommates. Like at one point, I lived in a different place every two weeks, you know, crashing on somebody's couch. I mean, you could live in a share apartment for $150 a month. Wow. And I also, you know, got these little writing jobs and I would get paid $50. So I was always like scratching it together. So you arrive in New York, and how do you find your way into that society world that you inhabited? You know, at that time, there were people on the sidewalks handing out flyers, like, come to this party. I don't know if you ever saw, God, what was that movie? After Hours with Griffin Dunn. Mm-hmm. It was literally like that. You would go out, you would go to a party, you would meet other people, you would go to another party. It was very free-flowing. And also, New York was Manhattan then. Right. Like, everybody was on that tiny island. And in a pretty small space, you know, two degrees of separation. It really, really was like that. You know, I used to model in punk fashion shows and I met people that way. Somebody would say like, hey, let's go to studio. And, you know, you'd go to Studio 54 and then there was this after club called the Mud Club and like Sting was there. (laughs) You know, at that time, like famous people were not walled off by bodyguards. Yeah. Because it was also new. So you really were in, you know, close proximity to very accomplished people, which now almost seems impossible to do. But back then, it was really just about being there. More with Candace Bushnell on how her life inspired Sex in the City when we come back. choose writing, of all things, as your way to explore some of these issues? I feel like it probably chose me. I did pursue acting a little bit when I first came to New York, but there was so much, again, sexism that it was overwhelming. So I really had to look out for myself. If you have money, if you have family connections, or if somebody's like plucked you out at a young age and said, you're going to be an actress and you know, you have a structure around you, you're probably okay. But otherwise, you know, it's a business that was full of predators. Yeah. I just couldn't, 
I couldn't navigate it. I couldn't take it, actually. And, you know, it's like there's a lot of things that I haven't done because I just couldn't deal with the sexism. And there was a huge amount of it in publishing, Hmm. in magazines. I mean, that's why I wrote for women's magazines. I was like, at least here, I'm not going to be hassled constantly. And, you know, I know I can do good work and be rewarded for good work. Whereas, you know, if you worked at a magazine and there were men there and they were in charge, it was, again, this constant kind of predatory thing of, you know, you have to do sexual favors to get ahead. It's not so so true anymore, but it was really, really true in the 80s. So actually, when I look back on it, what I tend to think is how might my career have been different if those weren't the circumstances? You know, I mean, I didn't go for a lot of things because I just didn't want to be in that situation. And so how do you think your career would have been different if you had, for example, been starting out right now? Well, I probably wouldn't have worked for women's magazines. I would have Mm -hmm. written for uh, the New York Times or Time Magazine, you know, I probably would have pursued other things in my career. I might have, you know, pursued working in TV, you know, a lot of things. I mean, for me, one of my regrets is that I feel like I spent too much time in my 20s worrying about relationships Hmm. when I wish that I had spent more time really pursuing a career. But, I mean, New York was a place where you did see successful women, but in general, the message was very much like, you know, have a career, but really be looking for a guy to marry who will support you. Because you know what? You can't afford that million-dollar apartment on your own as a woman because you don't make the money. You know, it was very difficult to survive as a woman in your 20s in New York City in the 80s. It's interesting that your regret is focusing too much on these relationships. Can you explain that a little bit? I mean, I feel like your expertise in relationships has been in some ways like the foundation of this incredible career. I think that you end up having a career by putting in a lot of time. Yeah. And going for it. I mean, I was writing a version of Sex in the City, you know, probably back in my 20s. One of the women who became the basis for Samantha was a friend of mine who I was interviewing for articles about relationships in like 1995. Wow. You've written and you've spoken a lot about how, you know, at the time that you got your column up The Observer— you were sort of piecing together various writing gigs and trying to, you know, make a life for yourself in New York as a writer and, you know, didn't have very much money at that point. And yet, one of the things that I think a lot of people think about when they think about Carrie Bradshaw is, like, how is she buying all these shoes and has this apartment, you know, on a writer's income, basically? Right. Well— First of all, the TV version is a very glossy version. Of course. And if you really want to know what it was like, read the book. Yeah. Now, a lot of people have a hard time with the book because it's not this 
fizzy, glossy reality of I can afford all these shoes and I'm always happy and this and that. It's the reality of life in New York. Right. And being in New York is tough. You have to survive. I mean, you're like a cockroach. (laughs) I mean, there were times when I was really, really broke and I had no money and I was really depressed and it was hard and you have to really reach down in a way and pull yourself up. And I do think that most people who are watching the show, they don't got the chops to do that. You know, I wrote for Vogue and I wrote for the New York Observer. And, you know, like a lot of people who were in journalism and covered those beats, it was the time of perks. Mm -hmm. You know, you could borrow clothes for a party. I mean, I didn't have that ridiculous closet like Carrie Bradshaw. I mean, that's Sarah Jessica Parker. Right. Uh, You would go to parties like that's where you ate. You would go to a party and eat that cocktail food. Right. And there was a whole group of people who, you know, how they survived really was covering this party circuit and writing about it. And, you know, I guess it would be kind of like being an influencer today. Right. Where you get the freebies, you get the free trip and then I'm going to post about it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I had a column in Vogue and the column paid $5,000 a month. And, you know, everybody went out, going out was considered part of your job, being seen. I mean, that really was how a lot of business got done. You know, in New York, being social is something that, has value to people, and they seek it out. I mean, every city has a society. Mm -hmm. But society is something that interests me as well. You know, where people are in the pecking order. And New York, you know, there were books like Bonfire of the Vanities. I mean, people were obsessed with society. Truman Capote wrote about it. Edith Wharton. You know, the French have been writing about French society forever. Right. There's always status. There's always power. You know, who's the most important person in the room? Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was New York City. It was an exclusive place. Right. There was a VIP room in the VIP room. So I want to quickly move to your Observer column that formed the basis for Sex in the City, your book, and then the show. So how did that column come about? Did you pitch it? Did they come to you? How did that happen? I was trying to write a column for years and, you know, for various publications because I had this idea that as a journalist, that would be a great thing to do because I would have a weekly column and I would have weekly income. Right. It would be like Dickens. (laughs) And... So I was trying to sell this idea of a column like everywhere. And at one time, I actually had a column in Mademoiselle Magazine. And then I did a column for Hamptons Magazine, which I went in and sold them, which was really a precursor to Sex in the City. It was all about, you know, young people in the Hamptons. Some of them were rich Some of them were 
wanting to be part of the scene and figure out how do I survive in this world. And it was called The Human Cartoon, and I pitched that to them. And everybody was on the beach reading it. They would give it away on the Jitney, which is a bus, by the way, for those listeners out there who don't know. And, you know, everybody was reading it. They thought it was about them. Like, some people wouldn't talk to me. It was all, like, very Truman Capote. And then I started writing for the New York Observer, and Susan Morrison was the editor-in-chief at that time. Mm -hmm. And so I started writing for them. You know, I pitched the first piece, which was called Manhattan Transfers, and it was about all of these kids who'd come to New York and they became cocaine addicts. And it came out great and they put it on the cover. Wow. And so that was really the beginning of my time at The Observer. So what was it like to write about people that you were dating or that your friends were dating? I mean, was it, did people ever get pissed if they showed up in your column? Like, how did you navigate that? I mean, I think I really only wrote about, you know, the one person who I was dating, and that was the real Mr. Big, Ron Galati. And I showed it to him. You did? Before I sent it in. Every time. I said, yes. I was like, here, this is, I've written about you. I'm calling you Mr. Big. And his response was, cute, baby, cute. I mean, I am still friends with him today, and I I talked to him on the phone, and he's writing a memoir. And now there were other guys who would come up to me and say, I'm not going to date you because you might write about me. And I was like, I don't want to date you anyway. But I wrote about a lot of my female friends, Mm -hmm. and they knew I was writing about them because I would gather a group of women together and say, I'm writing a story about this Let's get together and talk about it. And, you know, those were some great pieces. So how much of Sex and the City, the book and the TV series, is actually based on your life? Like, can you walk us through sort of how each version of it gets closer or further away from your real-life experiences? I would say that the book was, you know, it it was a mixture of fiction and— journalism, but the book was pretty much based on all real things that happened. And basically, I just took real life and put a structure to it, which is what, you know, that's what Edith Wharton did. You know, she was writing about real society, real conversations that she overheard at dinner. So I was doing the same thing. And those columns became the book. Sex in the City. I sold it to be a book probably after I'd written maybe the fifth column. And then in the TV series, in the pilot, I think probably three quarters of the lines in the pilot come directly from the book. So there are things that happened in my real life that I put into the book that made it into the series. And certainly the first two seasons were pretty close. I can trace, like when I watched those first two seasons, 
I kind of know where a lot of stuff came from. Mm -hmm. Can you walk us through sort of your involvement with the show and everything that came afterwards? Because you're so synonymous with this brand, but it hasn't always overlapped with your real work. Yes. I was, you know, worked in the writer's room for the first two seasons. You know, Darren Starr and I were very good friends. So there were things that happened to us in real life that ended up in the series. And then I wrote a book called Four Blondes that got on the bestseller list. And I got a call from my agent that I was being offered a million-dollar contract. So wow, I said, yeah, I'm going to go and write novels now because that's a lot of money, way more than I would have been making in the writer's room. So, I mean, that was really what happened was I got I got a million-dollar contract to write novels, which was my dream. So, right. you know, I did it. And, you know, Darren left the show, mm-hmm. and Michael Patrick King took over. And then it started more and more to take on a life of its own, and it became very commercial. Right. You know, it was really, in a way, like the first influencer show because whatever was on that show would sell like crazy. And the show had a cult following of women. I mean, that's why it was successful. So why do you think it created such a cult following? What do you think it was talking about? Because it was authentic. Because it was based on a real woman's authentic experience, mine. And, you know, it had a point of view. And... It had a perspective on life. And that is something that, you know, that fire translated from me into the book and into the series. You know, it's an energy. Yeah. And the series was really genuinely about something. It was about a new phenomenon that I was writing about, which was, you know, women who had gone through the 80s and had gone through all of that dating trauma and career trauma and found themselves unmarried in their 30s. And, you know, we were not sad. We felt like we ruled that city. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there was a group of women who really had each other's backs. And when women can pay for their own apartments and shoes, et cetera, their sexuality looks a little bit different. This show has spawned an entire phenomenon. It's got a cult following. The show went from sort of the first two seasons, which, as you said, were much closer to your original work, and then the show went on, and then there were movies, and now there's a spinoff. And through that whole time, People like to say, you know, are you a Carrie? Are you a Miranda? Are you a Charlotte? And a lot of people end up falling into, I'm a Carrie. Everybody thinks that they're a Carrie. But really, you're the Carrie. (laughs) So what is it like for you to have this entire generation of women compare themselves to an archetype that comes from your actual 
life and experience and really that is based off of you? You know, it doesn't really affect me. Mm-hmm. Like, I am a super down-to-earth, really real, authentic person. And, you know, I didn't make millions of dollars from the show. So, you know, people are always like, oh, your life must have changed. No, it did mm-hmm. not change. My life yeah. did not change because of that TV show. I mean, my life changed because I worked my ass off and wrote some best-selling novels. Right. And, you know, that was really what changed my life and allowed me to feel like I'm successful. I mean, to me, the part that's great about it is how much more independent women are Mm -hmm. and how much more self-actualized women are and are allowed to be. So that, to me, is really the important part of Sex in the City and the success of it is that I think it gave women a freedom to think about themselves in a different way. You know, I have value and I don't have to get my value through a man, which, you know, sounds like such a silly old-fashioned idea, but that was the reality for women for a very long time, up until about, you know, 25 years ago. This show defined an entire generation of women, and actually young women, like women my age or even younger. And one of the reasons that I think that's true is because this maps out what life for a woman can look like without a husband and children in a way that is, like, fun and great and free and uh, happy and fulfilled. So how have you thought about how this kind of traditional path of, like, marriage and family and children tends to really shape the way people tell stories about women and the types of stories that get told about women? The reality is that 86% of women over the age of 50 are mothers. Yeah. Whereas I think it's 61.5% of men are fathers. So there's really a very wow. big gap there. I mean, if you just go by the statistics, either most women really want to have children or they feel that they won't because society pretty strongly tells women that you won't have any meaning in your life if you don't have children. You know, that still, that's the path for fulfillment for women is having kids. I don't happen to agree with it. But on the other hand, I would never say to a woman who wants to have kids, like, don't have kids. I would never, ever say that. But at the same time, I You know, I mean, I have feelings about overpopulation, et cetera, global warming. So I personally think that it's really, really important that not everybody has kids. Uh, I think that most people would probably disagree with it, but that's my, you know, personal feeling. And I think that, you know, in some ways, like the future is single. But as a woman, you have to be really brave not to have kids. 
What are your thoughts on And Just Like That? Have you been watching it? I mean, I enjoy it. I like the new characters. It's super glossy and over the top. And, you know, it's a bit of escapism. Yeah. Does it ever feel too glossy to you These as the show's gone on? Are you ever like, oh, my God, I would never wear a ball gown on the street or something like that? You know what? That's how TV is these days. Yeah. So you've written and produced your one-woman show, True Tales of Sex, Success, and Sex in the City. What's coming up next for you? What are you working on now? Well, I'm working on doing that show. Yeah. It's a a lot of work. Yeah. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm doing it out here in the Hamptons. I'm doing it in New York City in the middle of October at Green Room 42. It's basically how... I created Sex in the City, how hard I worked to get there, why I invented Carrie Bradshaw, and what happened to me afterward. So it's, you know, like most one-person shows, it's, you know, partly my life story uh, intermingled with Sex in the City. It's gotten a great response. And there's a game, Real or Not Real, which addresses exactly what you talked about. It's Things that happened to me in real life versus things that happened on the show. So it's like everything that happens on the show is a little bit better or a little bit worse than my real life. Yeah. So it's fun. Okay, Candace. so we actually also have a bit of a game on this show, too. Um, Our final round of questions that we like to call The Last Time. Okay. Okay, so when is the last time you had a fun night out? Last night. What'd you do? Well, I went to a birthday dinner, and that was a fun night. And the night before that, I went out on, uh, I went for drinks with somebody who I met on a dating app. And that, too, was really fun. Okay, when is the last time you had a true New York City moment? (sighs) You know, I think every time I go to New York City, it's a true New York City moment. I went to the ballet at the end of June, and I saw an amazing ballet by Christopher Wielden, and he choreographed just an incredible ballet. I think it was like water for chocolate. And I've known him, you know, for years because my husband used to be a principal dancer with New York City Ballet. So that was really a treat seeing that. And that was at Lincoln Center, so it really doesn't get more New York than that. Nothing is more New York than Lincoln Center. Um, When is the last time you bought a magazine? Well, what about getting one in the mail, which happened a couple of days ago? I have a subscription to The New Yorker, so they keep coming. (laughs) Um, when's the last time you caught a bug in your house? Uh, probably an hour ago. I constantly seem to have bugs in my house. Um, it doesn't bother me that much. So, you know, yeah. I have dogs. I'm opening the door, closing the door. Bugs fly in. It's, it's not a big deal. It's summer. Yes. Yes. Um, and finally, when's the last time you took the subway? Probably in probably 1991 is the last time I took the subway. 
When I first came to New York, which was in the late 70s, I had no money for taxis. I took the subway all the time. I actually took the subway when the cars were not anything like the modern day subway cars. They really looked like something that you would have like in an old train set. And, you know, I was very young and I used to like cross in between the cars, which is something that you're not supposed to do. I used to jump off of the platform in between the cars and jump onto the subway platform, which is, again, is another thing that you're not supposed to do. But I did all of that. And I guess I rode the subway for so long that I finally said, someday I'm going to make it and I won't have to ride the subway anymore, which sounds terrible because I know everybody rides the subway, but that was probably the last time. (laughs) Candace, I so appreciate you making time to speak with me today. Thank you so much. Thank you. And also thank you for all of your writing. I mean, the worlds that you've created have really meant a lot to me and also all of my friends. So thank you. Oh, well, thank you. If you want to learn more about the real Sex in the City as lived by Candace Bushnell, definitely pick up her 1996 book, The Original Sex in the City, and check out her new one-woman show about the experience. Thank you so much for listening to Person of the Week. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd really love to hear from you. So send your tips or thoughts on our show to personoftheweek at time.com. I'm Charlotte Alter. See you next week. Person of the Week is hosted by Charlotte Alter. It's produced by Nina Bisbano and India Witkin. Our senior producer is Ursula Summer. Our story editor is Katie Feather. This episode was mixed by Rebecca Seidel and Rick Kwan. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. Joseph Frischmith is our fact checker. Person of the Week is a co-production of Time Studios and Sugar 23. At Time, our executive producers are Mike Beck and Sam Jacobs. At Sugar 23, our executive producers are Mike Mayer, Michael Sugar, and Liam Billingham. Sasha Mathias is the head of audio at Time. You can find us online at time.com slash person of the week and wherever you get your podcasts.